Hey, thanks, Bickerton family, for bringing us our Bible reading this week. Gaius Octavius Therenus was born on the 23rd of September, uh, 63 BC. By the time of his death, at the age of 75, which strangely enough was by natural causes, in AD 14, he had actually become known as Caesar Augustus, the first Roman emperor to hold the title of Augustus, and the first Roman emperor to be worshipped as a living deity. Augustus is a title which means illustrious one, uh, and and uh, Octavius was the first Caesar to receive uh, that title. Uh, he was also the first Caesar to receive the title as emperor, uh, the commander-in-chief of the known Roman uh, Empire. In 2 BC, he was declared uh, uh, Peter Patria, which means the father of his country. In fact, his birthday was celebrated in some parts of the Roman Empire by various people as the beginning of the year, as the start of, of all things good. There's an inscription that's been found on a, on a slab of marble uh, at a place called Helicranus, which is in modern Turkey, which, which would have adorned a temple there, and it says and it hails Caesar Augustus as the saviour of the world. And it lists the many benefits that he has brought to Rome and the peace that he, he has uh, built in his empire. Peace and a prosperity that has been maintained through overwhelming power and prestige. Uh, peace that is enforced with the brutal efficiency and cold indifference of the sword, but peace nonetheless. At his death, it is reported that his last words were, I found Rome a city of clay, but I left it a city of marble. However, according to his wife, Octavius's last words were, Have I played the part well? Then applaud as I exit. Both these fit the man who would, fit the, the man who would seek and grasp at becoming a god. And they lay the foundation, or he laid the foundation, for um, the worship of a living emperor, which eventually would become the test of loyalty to Rome and its regime, something that uh, John sympathetically writes and acknowledges as causing persecution in the church as he writes to the early church of Ephesus in Revelation 2. Well, it's this Octavius, this Caesar Augustus, that we meet here at the beginning of chapter 2 of Luke's Gospel. And he's doing what Caesars, what, what, what emperors do best, flexing their power to control uh, their people, their subjects. Luke tells us that Caesar had sent out a decree uh, to register all his subjects of the, of the whole world, which is simply language that means the whole of the known Roman Empire. Luke lets us know that this was the first regi- registration, and not the only one, but the first registration, when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. No doubt this registration is linked to, to tax purposes. Prudently, Augustus, though, uh, accommodates Jewish custom for, for registering and censuses by allowing them to do that by going back to their home or their origin, their place of birth. Again, we see here as Luke begins this chapter in chapter 2 that the good uh, Dr. Luke is committed to placing uh, his account of all that was accomplished in, in the life and the ministry of Jesus into its secular context, into where it touches down in human history. Luke wants us to know that as he does this, that we can have an unyielding certainty 
that it is God who is the Lord of history and that the actions of an emperor merely serve in a way the divine plan and purpose of God to bring about a promise of a true saviour of the world. Kent Hughes described this moment in history saying, Octavius's relentless arms stretched out to squeeze tribute, even out of a tiny village on the far end of the Mediterranean. Thus it came about that the village carpenter and his expectant teenage bride were forced to travel to his hometown to be registered for taxation. Although Caesar Augustus would never know it, he has unleashed a chain of events that would turn the whole world upside down. For among the millions of people who were forced to register was a man named Joseph and his bride Mary. This one insignificant family, this one a family of poverty, of vulnerability, of powerlessness, stand in stark contrast to the emperor, to the, to the tide of earthly powers that are seemingly sweeping them up. But they are a family of promise for whom which God will bring into the world a child of promise, a son, a ruler whose kingdom uh, would establish peace on the basis of justice, whose kingdom would be a kingdom of good news, good news to the poor, liberty to the captive and the oppressed, of reversal of physical and spiritual disease and decay, whose law would be love and whose sword would be grace. As Octavius flexes his arm inside civil history, if you like, he becomes a manifestation of Mary's song where she sung, God has shown the strength of his arm through which he will use the proud and the mighty to exalt, to lift up those of humble estate. The, you know, there's been a lot of speculation, a lot of critical voice around Luke's record of history here due to the fact that outside of Luke's account, outside of Luke's record, there's no other record, there's no other account of a universal census that spanned the whole of the Roman world, nor is there any record outside of the Bible placing Quirinius where Luke actually places him at this particular time. There exists plenty of evidence for the practice of censuses in, in the world at that time. Uh, there exists plenty of evidence for Quirinius that he held an office, a, a political role at that time. Yet uh, the thinking proposed is that if the only place that something is recorded is the Bible, then it can't be trusted as good history. Well, that line of thought has had to be constantly reviewed as more and more the endeavour of archaeological-based uh, history affirms more and more what only Scripture has actually recorded. The plain fact of the matter is, is that the Bible is a historic record. It is a historic document. And as we've discovered, as been uh, testified to, Luke is considered a historian of, of incredible veracity. So as Philip Ryken says, we may be sure that Luke knew more about all, all that was going on than what modern scholars do. There's no reason to deny or even to doubt that he has his facts straight. And it might come as a, a bit of a shock to modern progressive uh, scripture critics but Luke wasn't writing to accommodate their need for evidence. He was writing with the grand purpose of establishing 
uh, how it was that a child conceived by the Holy Spirit up in Nazareth to earthly parents from the line of King David came to be born in Bethlehem, the, the city of David, the city of David's origins. Luke is writing to demonstrate that no matter how powerful and how controlling a regime or a system might be, it is still on the leash, still on the chain of God's sovereignty. Luke is also writing to establish the credentials of this child as the promised Messiah, who God promised would bring everlasting peace and justice. He's writing to show uh, the credentials of him that this child needed to be born uh, at, not just as a descendant of King David, but also as the prophet uh, Micah had laid out, that he would be born in the hometown of David. As Micah wrote, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be amongst the clans of Judah, like it's just such an insignificant town, it's not even got a place in history if you like, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose origins are, are from old, from ancient days. To qualify to be the saviour of the world, Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And, and there's two Bethlehems at play in Israel at this time. So this makes this even more specific, even more um, detailed in its, in its uh, fulfilment. You know, what first appeared to be a great show of Caesar's power actually proved to be uh, the supremacy of God's sovereignty. Even Caesar's decree uh, is folded into uh, the plan of God to bring about his rule of peace in the world. God is the one who rules all things, and he rules all things for his glory and for our joy. Luke writes the how, the where, and the when of Jesus' birth so that we can be sure of his credentials to, in, in fulfilling all of Scripture's uh, prophecy and promise around him, that we can be sure of his place in God's uh, plan of salvation. That's why Luke starts this account with in those days, in those historic days, not with you know a once upon a time or in a galaxy far, far away. Luke is writing salvation history as it unfolds, not myth, not fable, not fiction, historic fact. And the facts are God orders and guides history to Jesus' birth. And the facts are, if you like, that history has found its whole reference uh, to Jesus' birth, whether it chooses to acknowledge him or not. Uh, if you don't believe me, just, just click open the device. I'm sure you've got one right there. Open up the calendar on it and, and you will see that it will tell you that it's Sunday, uh, the 7th of June, 2020. 2,020 years since this moment that Luke is writing, that Luke records for us. You know, we divide history around the birth of this child, this child of poverty and promise, and we name it dogs after the tyrant who reached to be God, but ultimately became a footnote in that history. It was the sovereignty and the promise of God to become a man that used the aspirations of a man who would seek to be God to bring about the incarnation, the arrival, the inbreaking of salvation uh, into the human story. However, this is not the only irony of this birth narrative. But just as a thought uh, before we move on, just as a thought as we marvel at the sovereign, powerful grace of God to use all things for our good, 
I am sure that there are times in our lives where we are enduring difficult circumstances and it's hard to see God's hand at work. But we need to be uh, like Mary and Joseph, uh, faithfully trusting that God knows what he is doing in our lives. Can you imagine Mary, eight, nine months pregnant, walking from Nazareth uh, down to Bethlehem and, and, and eventually arriving and having nowhere to, to kind of give birth? We need to be able to still trust God. When, when external circumstances and environments seem to be controlling our lives, God has not only promised our well-being in, in, in that, but also our salvation. But also on top of that, he is powerful enough to secure those promises to us in spite of environment, in spite of circumstance. Well, as I said, that... It, what, that uh, the irony of the two the two kings the two rulers isn't the only thing at play here. When it, when it came for the actual time for Mary uh, to give birth to the son, a son with the unique status of being God, who would be later described by Paul as the image of the invisible God, firstborn in all creation, the maker of all uh, all things physical and spiritual, the establisher of all powers and rulers in the universe, who he himself describes as who Jesus describes himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You know, the one who was and is and is to come. In there, in Revelation one, who is the King of Kings, who is the Lord of Lords, the supreme ruler of not merely some you know the Roman Empire but of all that lives and breathes on planet Earth, who is indeed the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten uh, Son, the radiance of God, the Father's glory. And by his divine nature, he shared in the full perfections of God's triune being. When it came time for this child, with all of these um, titles and recognition, to be born into this world, there was no room for him. There was no welcome for him. There was no welcome from those he has come to save. His birth did not trend on social media. Uh, the Gospel writer John says that uh, in Jesus the eternal word became flesh and dwelt amongst us and that he was in the world. And though the world was made uh, through him, the world did not know him, that he came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. The one who made all things, the one who controls all things, now finds that he has nowhere to lay his head. Well, not only is this a great irony, but it's also a cosmic indignity, an unthinkable outrage. And it brings to light, if you like, the picture of the depravity of humanity. The setting, the environment of the birth of God, the Son, is also a reflection of the state of our hearts towards God. We have no room for him. And it won't just be Bethlehem that Jesus will find no room. Uh, no room for his great kingdom of reversal. No room for his message of salvation. His own family will suspect him as, as crazy and, and too edgy to be associated with. Crowds who will flock to him uh, for the miracles will flee from him once he begins to talk about the suffering and cost that's attached to this new kingdom. Religious leaders will scoff and mock and seek to kill this prince of peace. There has never been any room for a king who comes to dethrone the idols of our hearts. 
rather than merely dethrone our, our enemies, our political enemies, our military enemies, these physical enemies, even if the alternative uh, to having the idols of our hearts dethroned is grace and peace for our soul. The story of the nativity shows our sin. It shows how unwelcome Jesus is until God in his grace reveals him to us as saviour. What the innkeeper and what the, what the inhabitants of Bethlehem did in ignorance is done uh, by many of us today with willful indifference. We make no room for the story of Jesus in our lives. Perhaps because we're looking for something more like Caesar Augusta, someone who's going to just meet our own personal desires and needs, nice roads, great internet, you know, great, um, great sporting events and entertainment and, and venues to go to. Well, this is a cosmic outrage that God could rightly pour out every last drop of his wrath against. What Luke wants us to see, what God is actually doing, is that this is God who does not need to be served, who does not need to grasp at power, who does not need to squeeze a tribute out of people, who does not even have a need to be worshipped. But rather, this is God who moves to serve those who are powerless, who comes to identify with the rejected, the outcast, those considered of no worth, this is God who takes all that sovereign power that he uses, uh, that uses the most powerful regimes in the world as mere pawns, uh, and, and he veils all that power in approachable humanity and restrains it in selfless serving humility. This is how God chooses to move toward sinners not as a needy tyrant seeking tribute, but as a vulnerable, approachable, even killable. God who needs for nothing, but now surrenders everything. God did not, you know, just save us from a distance, stay away from us, but chose uh, to come as close as he possibly could, sympathizing with us in our suffering but never sharing with us in our sin. Here is the name above all names, a beautiful Saviour, glorious Lord, Emmanuel, God with us. Here he is, now homeless and voiceless, powerless. Everything about his birth points to poverty, obscurity and even rejection. The God of the universe has chosen to enter into the worst of our situations, taking on all the limitations and and experiences of our own physical existence, of our own uh, experiences. Nothing, you know, could be more human than birth, than childbirth. And what a birth. Born into the muck and the manure of an animal shelter, laid most likely in a hole carved out of a rock or, or, or in the earth, the one who, who spoke to Job, Job 38, speaks to Job and asks Job, hey, was it you who made the clouds and swaddled them and clothed them in darkness? Now wraps himself, swaddled, clothed, uh, to make him secure, uh, to protect him against the very elements of nature that he himself created. J.C. Ryle says, 
Uh, we see here the grace and, and, the, and the condescension, the, hum, the humility of Christ. Had he come to save mankind with royal majesty, surrounded by his father's angels, it would have been an act of undeserved mercy. Had he chosen to dwell in a palace with power and great authority, we would have reason enough to wonder, to marvel. But to become poor as the very poorest of mankind, lowly as the very lowliest of mankind, this is a love that passeth all knowledge. It's unspeakable, it's unsearchable. J.C. Ryle would go on to say, Never let us forget that through his humility, Jesus has purchased our own glory. This is the reason behind the selfless, lovering, lowering humility and humanity of our sovereign God. God knew in the end that the only way to save us was, uh, was to suffer for us and ultimately to die in our place for sin. The birth of Jesus sets the pattern for his ministry. The ministry of Jesus that would be uh, a ministry of, of service, of, of suffering, of giving and giving and giving to, to bring human flourishing to people. The shadow of the cross looms even at his birth. The same body that is wrapped in swaddling cloth would also be wrapped one day in a burial shroud. The manger points to the cross, the cross to the grave. This is how an all-powerful God serves and saves us from sin. The God of the manger. And the question to ask ourselves as we, as we begin to look at this birth narrative of Jesus, is there any room in your heart for this kind of a God, for this kind of a saviour? one who comes with peace rather than wrath. Luke writes, so that you can have an unshakable faith that if you make room for this sovereign God in your heart, it will bring peace. It will lead you home. It can save and secure your soul. And you can be as confident of that as you can be of the God who guides and controls human history to bring us back into relationship with him. Hey, let's pray this morning. Um, yeah. Hey Lord, we thank you uh, for this, this narrative that Luke has recorded for us of your birth and, and what it exposes of the kind of God you are and the way that you came to seek and to save us. Not a God of wrath and power and might to crush us, uh, but a God who would make himself vulnerable and make and come and identify with every aspect of our lives. This is a God who we can trust on all levels. Trust him in his power, that he pours all of that power toward us to lift us up and to exalt those who are in lowliest state, to bring them back into relationship with you. And we thank you that you are not a God who stayed away from us, but came and sought us. And in Jesus we see uh, the inbreaking of God into our lives to bring salvation and healing into our lives. We give you praise and we thank you for this. And this morning we would just like to be able to say, Go well, go God. Amen.